Welcome to Your Family Dog, a podcast dedicated to helping families love living with dogs. Hi, welcome back to Your Family Dog. I'm Julie Fudge-Smith, and I'm here, of course, with Tina Spring. And today we have one of our many, many special guests, Barbara Dobbins. She's a former dog trainer. She writes about dogs and studies canine ethology. She lives in the San Francisco Bay Area with her two dogs, Tico and Parker. And she's here today to talk to us about spay and neuter. Um, it's not as cut and dry as one may think. And she had a great article in the Hull Dog Journal that came out in May of 2020 called On the Horns of a Dilemma, to neuter or not to neuter, that's the question. So she's here to talk to us today about spay and neuter and should you or shouldn't you? That's the question. So thank you, Barbara, for joining us today. Thank you for having me. All right. So Tina, you got your first question ready to go? Sure. So Barbara, I get questions. Uh, sorry, I just called you Barbara when it's probably Barb. Barb, I get the question often from um, specifically puppy owners saying, my vet saying we should spay and neuter, you know, as soon as the puppy weighs two pounds. I'm hearing all sorts of different things. When you have a family approach you about something like that, what are you what are you seeing that the research says? Well, it's not cut and dry. <laughs> you know, it's it is every dog is individual and an individual and including how they're going to respond to spay neuter. So um, what you have to do, I think, is Talk to them about the research that's out there and let them make their own decision. That's that's great. So if you were going to talk to them about the research, how are they going to find it? Where are they going to find the information in order to inform themselves? That's a good a good question. Um, there are a lot of scholarly articles out there on it. One of the things I like to use is Google Scholar. Um, not every article is accessible. However, I've had great um, results. If you just email the authors, they'll usually send you a copy of their paper. So, you know, if you find one, you're like, wow, this looks really interesting. They'll send you a copy of it, you know. So if you don't have access to all these veterinary journals, you know, ask the author themselves, especially if you think it's going to be relevant. Right. And they're usually really excited that somebody actually wants to read it. So they more than want to send the article to you. It's like, yes, somebody's actually reading my work. So one of the things that um, we might want to talk a little bit about is, so, so you email the author and you get Dr. Jones's study. How do you evaluate what he has to say? How do you make sense of a scientific journal article? That's a, that's a really good question. And, you know, it, it we need to we need to look at it critically. We do. We need to start um, saying, OK, you know, one of the things you might want to look at is, OK, who are the researchers? Where is their money coming from? You know, let's say it's on nutrition. Well, maybe Perina's sponsoring that, you know, study. So is there a bias because it's sponsored by, you know, somebody with a an agenda, what they want to come out of that article. So that's one of the things you have to look at. Um, let's see. Let me get some 
I wrote a whole list of ideas, you know, um, about what some of the things we want to look for. And this is just general studies, you know. Okay, we just talked about where did the funding come from? And then you want to look at competing interests. What are the competing interests of the um, the of the our, our authors, you know? What are they trying to identify and support? Uh, one of the big things that happens, especially in veterinary researches, are biases. You, you have everything from referral bias, which happens frequently when, you know, we're looking at a lot of these retrospective studies that come out of um, the veterinary schools, because what they're looking at is historical data, uh, such as from the veterinary medical database. And those are medical records. And so those animals you know, are already part of a specialized group, you know, because they're already coming into a, um, you know, they're already being seen at a veterinary hospital, you know, so it may not be representative of the population at large. Good point. Um, then what about the, yeah, what about the design of this study? I remember doing a, a piece, I looked at a study on um, pesticide control, for example. And so they did all this, they did all these um, questionnaires to people, but they didn't ask about diet. They didn't ask about environment. They didn't ask all these questions. And I'm thinking, you know, that's a huge misstep, in my opinion, um, in the design of the paper, because you've really got to look at the entire picture of the dog to be able to, to determine influences. So, um, and then similarly to that recall bias. So if you're doing a study that has, um, that you're asking owners and you're asking them to, re, you know, say, Hey, has your dog experienced this? You know, they may not remember or they've changed, you know, and so recall bias can, can come into it. When you were talking about, environmental things. One of the things that people don't understand is when you're doing a research study, what you want to try and do is eliminate the, the most variables that you can. So if you are not adjusting for, you know, age, environment, food, that kind of thing, then you are not eliminating those variables within the study and they can, they may or they may not influence the results of what you're doing. So one of the things that I look for in the study is, is if I think about something like that, Trying, they should be explaining in their procedures how they tried to eliminate variables so that they knew they were testing for that particular variable. And that's exactly. something to be aware of is, is how many variables are going on here and how do you know you've eliminated for the variable you're looking for? Exactly. And, and, and I really respect when, when the authors say, here are things that we need, you know, that we were aware of. You know, these were inherent biases that we right. were aware of, you know, so whether it's, you know, um, referral or, you know, funding or things like that. So it's, that's important. Right. And some of those things can be adjusted for in the statistics, but not all of them can be. Well, so. you know, so let's maybe talk a little bit specifically about where a lot of these veterinary studies on spay neuter come from. Um, a lot of it is a retrospective study. So it's not you know, it's not controlled in any way. And, you know, there's, it's not randomized, you know, so mm -hmm. they're looking at past medical data. And if, and that then becomes dependent on the accuracy of that original medical record. So, you know, and it limits that group, as I said, a specialized group to those that were seen at vet teaching hospitals, you know, it's called the veterinary medical database there. I think there's what 27 
um, North American vet hospitals that contribute to this. So it's a great source of data, but it's limited to what's there. Right. So, okay. So I think what we're saying is that you need to try to be objective when you're reading these studies and not just read the headlines and not just say, oh, this study says, and, and read it carefully because you may think that, that uh, the headline, according to some journalists says, you know, spay neutering causes cancer. Well, there's probably something more behind the headline and um, headlines are intended to attract your attention, not necessarily to inform you fully of what the study is all about. Popular press tends to simplify, you know, I think, unfortunately, a lot of these studies, you know, they get a hold of one little nugget and, you know, like, oh, look, you know, and and granted that nugget's probably really important, but it's not the full picture. And and we just can't hold on to that. And I think you were asking about people who ask me about it. It's usually because they've got a hold of this one little nugget and they want to know more. And so that becomes an opportunity to educate them on, okay, well, let's look at this study that you're referring and and start talking about it. Right. So what are some surprising data when you've dug into all this data? What are some things that would surprise people to learn from the information you've collected? This is in the article, but this all kind of originated when my young border collie pup started to develop an orthopedic issue. And so he had to multiple surgeries as a young pup, you know, to correct this. And I started to think about, well, do I want him to have to undergo an anesthetic during spay neuter? I mean, you know, another anesthetic after this is all done. It's like, okay. So I asked his, um, you know, a lot of people were saying to me, it's like, oh my God, you really want to spay neuter him at this, you know, age because of his growth plates. And I'm like, uh, I don't know. You know, so I, I asked his orthopedic surgeon and he works on a lot of agility dogs. And he said, yeah, I haven't seen that, you know, and granted that's anecdotal, but if somebody working on the bones of these dogs didn't see a problem or a correlation between, you know, early spay neuter and bone issues, then that was good enough for me at the time, you know? So, and I went ahead and did it. And, you know, since, since then I started writing this article and, you know, there's a few things I probably would have um, looked at more closely. And a lot of that is, it has to do with ethics. So, and I think that it for me is the most surprising thing is, is ethically, is it right to spay and neuter? Is it ethically okay, for lack of a better word, to um, maim our dog? You know, in a lot of countries, it's considered uh, mutilation akin to ear cropping and, you know, declawing and tail docking. So that's one of it. But um, I think, too, sorry, there's a lot of information here. I'm trying to make sure we get it all in. I think... (laughs) When we get it, when we get right down to it, I think the most interesting thing was it's a toss-up. When you look at all the factors, pro and con, it's almost 50-50, you know? So whatever your decision you make, you look at that information, you know, it's going to be okay. Yeah, yeah. I just, what's interesting too is, is I feel like I get a lot of interesting information from a variety of sources. Um, Right now, we happen to have two female dogs. I normally have male dogs, so this is a new adventure for me. And both of the breeders, one is a flat-coated retriever and the other one is a clumber spaniel, and both breeders have said they didn't want the dogs spayed until after their first heat. Whereas my vet says to me, 
No, we want to spay before the first heat because I've got a study that shows that you dramatically decrease the chance of, um, you know, uh, uterine and mastectomy can I mean, all can cancers in females by, you know, spaying them before their first um, heat. And I'm like, ah, uh, well, I'm not sure. Well, with, with Zuzu, we got her after she had her first heat. She wasn't around any other females, so she didn't go into heat again. And I had her spayed. Um, this was kind of cruel on her second birthday. Um, but, uh, <laughs> but uh, you know, that, that's the kind of thing. Is, is, it's, just, it's hard for owners to know what to do when their breeder saying one thing or, you know, the shelter saying one thing like, oh, no, we need to spay it, you know eight weeks of age and no, you need to wait until after the first heat or no, we need to do it, you know, after eight weeks, but before the first heat, it's, it's very difficult for owners to know what to do when they feel like they're getting conflicting information from a variety of sources, which is why I think it's important for them to be able to do their own research and to understand how to interpret their results so they can make the best decision for their particular dog. I think that's a great example that you just gave uh, regarding, you know, the spaying of your dog simply because, you know, there is some controversy, you know, in fact, my sister just texted me the other day. She goes, okay, we've got someone here saying that now it's recommended that the uh, spay neuter doesn't, uh, the spay does not take place until after the second heat, you know? (laughs) And so, okay, you know, where's this coming from, you know? So we start getting all this different information, but, with spay, there's some really curious things that happen with estrogen. And let me just read this to you. It's thought that females that have undergone several estrous cycles, potentially cancerous cells have been sensitized to estrogen, making estrogen protective as long as the female remains intact. So then the problem becomes if the female is neutered after several estrous cycles, and then and the estrogens removed those estrogen sensitized cell cells can then become neoplastic so so see so neutering before those cells don't become uh, neoplastic you know don't have aren't sensitive to neoplastic but after they've already been enhanced by the estrogen and have a tendency to be so how, how do you know <laughs> Well, that's right. And what do you mean by several estrous cycles? You know, are we talking, what, 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 what does several mean? Does that mean two? Does that mean six? You know, what does that mean? So this is, this is tough stuff. So I'm probably the weird outlier, right? My parents have been breeding and showing dogs since 1979. I, I grew up in the company of intact animals and all of the associated stuff that goes with that. Right. And um, I think one of the things that I say to families a lot is we don't have the opportunity to do it both ways. Right. I had a male Jack Russell Terrier who my staff will tell you was sweetness and light. He probably would have been an absolutely he was crazy healthy. He lived to almost 18 years old, never had any medical problems that weren't the typical I'm a Jack Russell and I ate something and gave myself the occasional bowel obstruction kind of issue. Um, So he probably would have been a really great pet dog daddy, right? Like he was everything someone wanted in a dog, social with dogs, good with other animals, great with people, lovely, lovely dog. Um, 
he was neutered when he was, you know, seven months old. So would he have been the same dog had he remained intact? My experience is yes, he would have. Um, but I think lots of families worry um, in in all of the the different mathematical issues of what risks and rewards they're taking. Um, when people ask me what I do, I don't do girls because I don't want to have to deal with heat cycles. Thank you very much. I know that that probably makes me a terrible human being. I'm okay with that. If that's the worst thing I ever do, then life's good. Um, so we do have males and they are allowed to keep their equipment so long as their equipment is not a problem. So typically my boy puppies are going to stay intact until they're at least two, because it seems like they do get some very real benefits just maturationally of being allowed to be intact males and move more toward maturity. And I like that from a like stability of temperament perspective. Um, but, but I'm sure that there are 18 research papers on why I'm absolutely wrong because I'm just looking at the microcosm of my own home and my own family and my skill and dogs I pick and all that stuff. Which so exactly everyone should do, you know, is decide for themselves. Does this work for me? You know? So I've heard it said that if you have a, let's say you have a litter of puppies and it's all boys, we're going to, we're going to choose an all boy litter and we neuter half early and we let others mature. The ones that are neutered early will end up being a hair taller than their brothers who were neutered later because it takes longer for the growth plates to turn off. Is that accurate? Um, the, there are, are studies that say that, yeah, yeah, but it's a hair different. And from what I understand from the studies, it's clinically not, um, significant, significant. Yeah. So, well, I agree with you, Tina, that, um, you know, like we had a, a dog, uh, uh, one of the flat coats that we own Tex was with my daughter dog. He came to us intact and we saw no reason to, to change because Tex was great the way he was. The other thing is, is what Tex did have, though, was seizures. And we kind of thought, you know what? Not sure. Spaying and neutering is not going to make a difference on the seizures. But the anesthetic may not be something that we want to subject a dog who has seizures to um, unnecessarily. And since it's not an issue, let's keep him intact. And, and it never became an issue. He, he actually did die of a, of a, of a, mm. a grand seizure. Um, but, um, that had nothing to do with spay or neuter. Um, and like you, Tina, we, I was telling Barbara before we started, we had this wonderful golden retriever by the name of Hudson, who my daughter, who was Texas owner, her first dog was Hudson and, um, Hudson, she was bound to determine he'd be the best socialized dog on the planet. So by 16 weeks of age, he'd met 750 people and he was a true politician, could work any room, was the sweetest best dog with with kids of all kind when my older daughter who was living with us she and her husband when she had her first baby hudson decided that ellie needed her to take care of her and baby henry and so for the first three weeks of henry's life hudson would not leave ellie's side except to go to the bathroom and have his dinner you know or his breakfast but you know as, as ellie puts it baby henry was not going to fall down a well on <laughs> hudson's watch and we and and i remember thinking and we've neutered him he would have been 
this the most wonderful dog to breed. And so I kind of wanted to talk as that is, and, and with your Jack Russell, the same thing, Tina. I want to talk about what's happening with the widespread desexing at the population level. How is that? Is that making a difference in the quality of dogs that we are seeing? That's 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 a huge um, yeah. That's a really really good question, and it's when I really started to divide uh, dive into when I neutered my last uh, border collie and at, at six months of age actually because he's undergoing surgery and and I was like you know I'm I'm an ethical vegan and all of a sudden I start to think I just cut off my dog's reproductive parts oh my god I just you know mutilated my dog you know and so it it you know that gets into those ethics but and then when you start thinking about it, like you, I had two amazing border collies, which because at the time, that's what I did as a responsible pen owner. I spayed and neutered. And then all of a sudden I had all these people asking me, where did you get these dogs? Where did you? Because they were such, you know, ambassadors for the breed and everybody wanted something, you know, wanted ones like them. And I'm thinking, oh, my God. And I'm thinking back to um, God, years ago, I was at a workshop with Myrna Milani and she says something to the effect that. If we spay and neuter all the good dogs, what are we going to have left? And I think that's a really astute um, observation. So we need to, you know, kind of look at what we're doing on a population level. I would agree. Like if we, I often think like if mandatory spay neuter was passed, we would only the most at-risk animals would be in a position to enter the gene pool, right? So um, yeah, who's, who's going to be responsible for doing those breeding? And, too? Yeah. And, and responsible, reputable breeders cannot produce enough animals for the, for the demand, right? Precisely because they are reputable breeders. So they're not constantly pushing out, you know, 18 litters of puppies. So, um, you know, a good reputable breeder is is often not breeding until every single one of those puppies has a secure, appropriate home before it's the egg is fertilized um, because they don't want to contribute to pet overpopulation. Um, so I think I will say that what, you know, 20 years ago, if I went and did temperament tests at the shelter, the vast majority of those dogs were stable enough to easily go in the average home. And and I cannot always say that's true anymore. Like there are some times that I go and do temperament testing and I I personally would not want to bring any of those animals home. Right? The the level of arousal, the level of prey drive, the the lack of tolerance for frustration, the levels of resource guarding I see. And and Occam's razor, and I would love to be wrong, tells me that that's actually about spay neuter, that we have eliminated grandma and grandpa's dog, who was a really nice beagle, who would hook up with the Jack Russell down yeah. the road, yeah, they'd and they be would make around. really cute little puppies that were stable and, and, you know, just sweet, awesome, little mixed breed puppies, right, um, from a good neighborhood, right, um, so, yeah, I, 
I do, and and I don't know that anybody's ever going to fund a research study on are we making dogs more dangerous? Anybody's going to ever fund that because sadly in this world, all things become political. They have to. So it's like, who's going to pay for that? Who's going to pay for a study that says, is spay and neuter resulting in more dangerous dogs in our communities? Well, I think one of the problems we have too is is the fact that that certain breeds become popular. So then you get the unethical breeders producing dog after dog after dog. And if their dogs don't, uh, uh, under horrific conditions, so these puppies are in prenatal environments that are horrific and that produces more unstable puppies. And then they're raised for eight weeks in, in a horrific environment. So now you have a puppy who had never had a very good chance to begin with because you had a bad prenatal as well as immediately postnatal experience. And so it's just, you, you want to go in and just sort of neuter all those <laughs> people's dogs. <laughs> but it get, you get these dogs dumped on, on the unsuspecting public, and then these people can't handle these dogs. And, and they end up in the shelters. And it's just, it's such a nasty cycle. And the really responsible people are like, oh, I want to, I want to be responsible with not only my dog, but I want to be responsible to my community. And so therefore I should spay or neuter my dog. And I think that's really been driven home hard. And I think that we're now going against a trend of, of, you know, how many ever 20 years of the spay neuter pushing. And I'm not sure that it's actually producing the results that we want. Um, are there really less dogs um, in shelters? Are there really, you know, less dogs that I, I, there may be fewer dogs, but the dogs we're seeing are so unpredictable and so difficult. And I, I, and I, my heart bleeds for shelters. I, I kind of feel like there's three populations here that are really suffering. Shelter workers are really suffering because they're, they have to deal with difficult dogs on a daily basis. Most of their dogs have real severe behavior problems. I feel sorry for the dogs who are coming into shelters who have not had very good beginnings in life. And I feel sorry for the first time owners who want to go in and just adopt a nice, I just want a nice dog. I don't care about a pedigree. I just want a nice dog for my kids. And, um, I kind of feel like, um, he views my child as a baby wildebeest. And um, it's a tough, tough situation. So. I've seen that, seen a lot of that actually. Um, and unfortunately, have now experienced a lot of dog owners who have tried adopting from shelters and rescue organizations and finding the dogs are just so inappropriate for their lifestyle that they wind up going to a breeder or they've had such bad experiences, whether it's a bite or an aggression issue. And, you know, they're just like, nope, not doing it again. And so, you know, that's, I think, I think that's changing. And then we, you know, interestingly, the whole pandemic, there haven't been enough dogs. I don't know about in your area, but here there aren't enough dogs to go around. Everybody wants a dog. And so, well, and, and I would agree, like, okay, so somebody goes to the shelter and they go and they get that dog that becomes a, a really bad, negative, horrible experience. You're not going to get donations from those people. They're never, they're never going to look at a, a mixed breed animal again. Like the, there are just, it, none of it is simple. Um, and I, there's a part of me that, that, um, 
the stewardship piece is important. I think those of us who are in the industry owe the world safe dogs and we owe the dogs safe families, right? And that means, I mean, honestly, that's what reputable breeders are doing. They are matching the right individual puppy with every benefit they can possibly give them with the right family. Um, and our shelters and our rescues should be doing that too. Um, and I know that that can be controversial to say. There are lots of people who think we should save every single dog. And what I would say is that they haven't met the dog yet that's so straight up dangerous that they couldn't live with it. I think it's it's really easy to judge things from like this moral high ground when they're when they're not having to live with a dog who's dangerous or live with a dog who's completely unstable or that their life, their world gets really, really small because the dog is so fractious and so sensitive. So I, I, how spay neuter fits in with all of that and cancer risk. And like, it's such a, it's a, I don't know, it's like a cobblestone. (laughs) Oh, it is. of road that we all have to go down to sort out what we're going to do. And I will, I will go on record saying I have um, two mixed breed dogs, two purebred dogs. Every single dog in my home right now is a rescue. I have purchased and I'm sure will purchase again, purebred dogs from reputable sources. I will also, I'm sure get dogs from purebred rescue and from all breed rescue. Like I do all of the things. So I have even imported, somebody's going to be mad about this, a dog from another country that is a rescue. So, um, you know, I'm sure I hit all of the things. If you want to be mad at me about something, there you go. I I just gave you the whole laundry list. (laughs) And I'm going to respond to my, this is what I always tell people, you know, because in training and everything, people, people come to you like, oh, I have a rescue dog. Oh, I got it from breeder. And, and my answer is all dogs need good homes. Let's, you know, let's just leave it at that. All dogs. And, and we, you know, once a person has a dog, let's deal with that dog. Um, And to get back to your spay neuter question and whether or not how this all affects, you know, spay neuter, um, maybe one of the things we should be doing then is trying to support these um, often vilified breeders, you know, support them in in, in Mm -hmm. providing health behaviorally and physically sound dogs. You know, if we if we change our attitude towards good breeders, you know, I know when um, I got my uh, border collie who who came from a breeder um, at a ranch from a ranch outside in Yosemite. He um, I, I remember telling a friend, my other dog came from our local shelter because my sister was working there and says, came home one day and said, do you trust me? I'm said, of course. So here I have this lovely mixed dog and I wanted to get him a companion that I knew was going to be solid. I didn't want to risk what I brought home to him. So I, so I did my research and I found this amazing breeder and I got this dog. And when I was mentioning it to a friend of mine, you know, she, she looked at me like I was, you know, evil incarnate because. Oh yeah. I've gotten that too. Cause we've had purebred dogs and. People are like, but the only way to get a dog is to adopt a dog from a shelter. And I'm like, well, it's not the only way. It's one way. But um, no, I've, I've had that too. Just this, there is something absolutely wrong with me 
for wanting a purebred. Yeah. Dog. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that, you know, and again, let's focus on making, you know, it could be too, that if we focus on behaviorally sound and behaviorally and mentally sound dogs, you know, maybe this spay neuter thing won't be as big as a big of an issue. Good point. Good point. The, the other thing is, 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 you know, like Tina said, you know, my younger daughter, um, her first dog we got from a shelter. And if I had known then what I know now, that dog would not have come home with us, but I didn't know then. And it turned out to be, um, well, a very difficult situation. And we eventually had to have the dog euthanized because it oh, killed sorry. our neighbor's dog. And yeah. And so I'm one of those, I'm not going back to a shelter and my daughter was 11 years old when she had to make that when she made the decision to put her dog down I was going to be darn sure that the next dog she got was going to be the very best dog possible for her and that's when we got Hudson (laughs) and Hudson became her rescue dog and and I don't know who rescued who I don't know if Emma rescued Hudson even though he you know he's a purebred dog or whether he rescued Emma but it was a match made in heaven and um I mean, I still, I, it's funny, every time I see a golden, my heart just breaks because I want another golden, just like Hudson. But, but I, don't, we're not, I don't think any of us are saying like, oh, only dogs with significant major issues come from shelters no, or rescue. That's, That's not the case, right? Oh, no, what I no. would say, the difference in advocacy no. from my perspective, having being the kid of someone who is a reputable breeder, is that a reputable breeder, if you're having a significant behavior problem or a significant health problem with your your animal, they're gonna backstop you. They're gonna jump in and help. They're gonna want that information. They're gonna wanna know there's a problem. Um, and, And often they will take that animal back and they will deal with the consequences of all of that because it is the reputable right thing to do. Um, it's, exactly, exactly. In fact, that's how we got Tex is that he was returned to the breeder because they didn't know how to deal with seizures. And we said, that's not a problem for us. Right. And again, so, like I, yeah, I pulled no, Doberman and, and, from Doberman rescue. I've pulled a pug from pug rescue. Both of one had behavioral issues. The pug is deaf, right? Like I was now rescues don't always know. For example, the pug being deaf, I was not made aware of until after he lived with us. Um, Cause it's a little hard to tell whether a pug is hard of listening or hard of hearing. Um, those kind of look the same. Um, but you know, I don't think, I don't think the rescue like lied to me. Like there, there wasn't that. I think they genuinely didn't know the dog wasn't in their care very long. So, um, you know, and he kind of pays attention a little bit. So, and he's social, he's happy. So he's pretty easy. So it even took us a little while to go, no, I'm pretty sure he's deaf. So, um, I'm not saying none of us, I think are saying like, Oh, breeders are the best and rescue sucks. Like, I'm not saying that I do work with rescue No, no, no. and they're awesome. Right. Many of them are awesome. I think none of them are easy answers. Um, okay. So Barb, I'm going to run through all the, some of my old, things that I have been told. So I have been told um, the earlier you spay a bitch, the better the chance you're going to have incontinence issues Ah. as she ages. True or false? That's a really good question. Um, It's contradictory. All the studies are contradictory on that. 
topic. Um, and in fact, what's really interesting, I uh, <laughs> um, that whole dog journal, I corrected it numerous times, still printed an error in that last article, which I think is really important. Um, and that is, so one of the theories is that low estrogen causes incontinence. However, pregnant dogs whose estrogen is extremely low don't have, aren't, aren't being reported as having incontinence issues. So, you know, so is it an estrogen issue? You know, is it a result of spay? Don't know, but chances are it may not be. Um, there does seem to be, you know, the studies say, you know, in general, yeah, there's there's a relationship. Again, everything's just a relationship. It does not mean it's a cause. So is it that there's, I mean, that, okay. So for me, that seems like pretty important information to have, mm-hmm. right? Like knowing would allowing your puppy girl to go through a heat cycle increase the chances that you're not going to have incontinence issues as she ages, that seems like important medical information to have. Surely someone should have done a study on that. They like have it's not as if removing yeah. these organs from these dogs has zero negative consequences. Right. They ha- there have been studies, but they're, they're studies that contradict each other is what, you know. So one study will say yes, the other study will say no. So that's what I'm saying. There's no definitive answer on that. Hmm. You know, so you just kind of have to go, okay, what study do I like best? You know, um, uh, Palm and Reichler actually um, treated, did a study where they treated uh, uh, gonadotropin releasing hormones, um, dogs with incontinence with that. And um, they found that the, this was a cause of, um, incontinence, not the sex hormone. So, you know, that's what I'm saying is there's so many different things that happen. Oh my. <laughs> Sorry, I don't, I don't have a better answer for you. You know? Yeah. It's just, it's some say yes, some say no. So would you say, uh, but you stunned Tina into silence. So that's cool <laughs> now who's snarky. <laughs> <laughs> It's rare to have Tina stunned into silence, so uh, you should be impressed. So what do you see? Not actually that rare. Have you seen a lot of incontinence in spade dogs? Yes. Really? Yes. But I also see more UTIs than vets tell me ever happen in puppies. Like, I see puppy UTIs constantly. Yes. Yes. And if you ask the average vet, they're like, no, 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 it's very rare. And I'm like, well, not in my experience. And that is true. That has been supported by data, by research, is that young dogs, um, they tend to have a slightly higher incidence of bladder infections, but they tend not to be chronic and they improve. Yes, I would say that that's yes. But but my experience, honestly, is that the vast majority of puppies break with UTI at some point. Mm -hmm. Um, And and while we while you and I and and Julie know the the like frequent urination of small volume a gajillion times a day, we're like, ah, we have a UTI (laughs) for most families biting. And like this puppy that's insane, like their brain's on fire. I'm like, yeah, that's probably a UTI. Like the reason your puppy is completely out of its mind, angry all the time is that he feels terrible. So um, 
I'm I am constantly sending people to the veterinarian to have their urine puppies urine cultured, not their urine. That wouldn't help. Um, so that we can, so that we get to the crux of the issue, like go to causation, go to causation. So, but I do see a ton of urinary incontinence in spayed female dogs. That being said, I don't get to see very many intact female dogs. So I have unquestionably a bias in the data that comes into me because the same thing that like, I don't see the dogs that have beautiful behavior very often. Most often I'm dealing with dogs that have pretty significant behavior problems. So it skews the data and the lens through which I look. Exactly. No, I, I get that. And, um, uh, you know, again, you know, if you look at Palm and Eichler 2012, they, they did treat, they successfully treated dogs with the gonad, um, gonadotropin releasing hormone GNRH. And so, and that, that, and so what that did is that it suppressed the release of those, you know, in the body and, 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 and cured, not cured, but, you know, mitigated urinary incontinence, which leads to the fact that it's not the removal of estrogen, but the preponderance of the, um, the heart, you know, the super antagonist implants, you know, that doesn't make any sense. Um, <laughs> so what I'm saying is that they're, they found ways to treat it that doesn't have anything to do with hormones. So is it because the spay news is something else? And I think this is maybe a really good point. And this is one of the things I'd really like to like to talk about, if you guys don't mind, is that what do hormones do? You know, and I think that's what we have to, you know, that is a huge area of research. And we don't even know all the all the ins and outs of what hormones are doing in our body. And, you know, we have receptors for estrogen and progesterone and testosterone. And then when you remove that, what does that do to the whole body? You know, well, not right, just now it, right now it just makes me hot randomly <laughs> and kind of grumpy. Yes. And I really like salt. So, <laughs> you know, Barbara, that's a great question. What is it that these um, hormones do? So if you want to find out the answers to those questions, you're just going to have to stay tuned to part two of despair or neuter. Is that something you should or should not do? So we'll see you next time on Your Family Dog as we continue with Barb Dobbins, our discussion of spay and neuter. Thanks for listening to Your Family Dog. Got questions? Interesting ideas? Visit www.yourfamilydogpodcast.com to share your thoughts.